Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 307. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and dandy. Beginning of the month. Fantastic show and have a look at the artwork. Decided to go out and get some art for just for the sake of, you know, sprucing up the old girl. And it is stunning. It's by David DeMart. And it's just, I put it on Facebook yesterday, the day before. Well, yes, the day before yesterday or whatever it was. Mine's a bit of a blur. And just everyone's liked it. You know what I mean? What a lovely bit of artwork there. And David says it was for. And the actual French edition of Ghost Country by Patrick Lee. So do check out that as well. Check out the, the French cover. Check out the, the American cover as well. But David, I'm just so pleased you, you, you let Starship Super have this, you know, this art. And it's just stunning. Everybody likes it. It's fantastic. Do come over to the front of the website and have a look. Well, first of the month we have Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. This is part two. This is where she's delving into all the kind of science fiction's relationship with Jack the Ripper. Then we have Cassandra by C.J. Cherry. This is a Hugo award-winning best short story, 1979. And it is the first time we've had C.J. Cherry on the show. Then right at the end... We have that man himself, Mr. John Joseph Adams. Help fund my robot army. We've got an, an interview with John. John's doing a Kickstarter campaign on that. Yes, help fund my robot army and other improbable Kickstarters, an anthology, which just, I'll, please listen to the interview because it's, it's lovely just even just have a chat with John, to be quite honest. Very nice. That is today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So I think there's nothing more to say than Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! 
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. As you may recall, on my last segment, we noted that the fall of 2013 marks the 125th anniversary of the 1888 Autumn of Terror. That is the multiple murder and mutilations performed by the unknown killer Jack the Ripper. In the East End of London, for over a century, authors have been turning to fiction in order to express their thoughts and feelings and wrestle with the aftermath of these horrific crimes. Science fiction has been no exception. In fact, science fiction has developed、uh, a number of different ways to approach the Ripper question. I ended the segment. Last time, by discussing Robert Bloch's *A Toy for Juliet*, which appeared in the 1967 anthology *Dangerous Visions*, edited by Harlan Ellison. In that story, Jack the Ripper is brought forward into a future dystopia to be the plaything of, or perhaps to make his plaything of, an apparently unstable Juliet. It was left to the reader to decide exactly what happened once the Ripper discovered that underneath Juliet's pillow was a knife. Harlan Ellison himself took up that challenge in the same collection, writing, "The Prowler in the City at the Edge of the World," a direct response to Bloch's "A Toy for Juliet." Ellison's story picks up where Bloch's ended. And we discover that Jack the Ripper took the knife and, as you might have expected, killed Juliet. And you know what? No one in this sterile metropolis he's found himself in really cares. In fact, everybody seems free to go do whatever they want to do. The people who live in this city seem to be capable not only of time travel, but also of the manipulation of matter and the reading of minds. They quite literally get inside Jack the Ripper's head. They allow him to commit more murders, both in the London of his past and the city of their future, and they deconstruct his motivations. They're there with him every moment, and it turns out that he had convinced himself that he was committing these atrocities in order to bring attention to the injustices and wretchedness of what was the East End. And industrial Victorian society, but in fact, underneath those justifications were his own petty lusts and hatreds, and the denizens of the city throw this back to him, and then they sort of feast on the psychological anguish that follows. In the end, he is disarmed and left to roam the city, pretty much harmless and hopeless. Crying out that he's actually a bad man and they should take him seriously, instead of using him for their own entertainment and then throwing him aside. A very dark and thought-provoking story, as you would expect from Harlan Ellison. I should mention that in August 2013, a new collection called Tales of Jack the Ripper, edited by Ross E. Lockhart, was published. Two things I really want from a thematic collection. Are number one variety, 
and number two, an awareness of the tradition in which the authors are writing. And this collection really delivers very well on both counts. And I mention it now because two of the stories are direct responses to Harlan Ellison's response to Robert Block. Both Edward Morris's Where Have You Been All My Life and Joseph S. Pulver Sr.'s Juliet's New Toy are sequels to Ellison's sequel to Block, and they are both satisfyingly dark and poetic. And speaking of being aware of literary tradition, perhaps my favorite story in this new collection is T.E. Grau's The Truffle Pig, which puts the Jack the Ripper murders into a Lovecraftian context and makes the horrors part of, and I'm quoting from the story here, the cosmic chess game played on a terrestrial board. Really great stuff. It's also worth mentioning that the volume opens and closes with works from a friend of Starship Sofa, the wonderful poet Anne K. Schwader. All right, I'm going to try to be a bit systematic here about how I discuss different movements in science fictional treatments of the Jack the Ripper story. There's no way I can cover all of the material. It's just vast and very deep. So I just want to dip our toes into the pool, as it were. Just give a couple of representative works for the different categories that I've identified. The first of these is the use of the science fiction trope of time travel in order to discuss Jack the Ripper. Perhaps the best known of these works is Time After Time. This began its life as a 1979 science fiction novel by Carl Alexander. The plot imagines what would have happened if H.G. Wells really had built a time machine, and he used that time machine to travel to the 1970s in search of Jack the Ripper. Yes, 1970s, not 1870s. But immediately, the story took on a new incarnation when... Alexander's friend, Nicholas Meyer, adapted the story into a film. The film starred Malcolm McDowell as H.G. Wells and David Warner as Jack the Ripper, and Mary Steenburgen as Amy Robbins, who is a 20th century bank teller. Wells becomes involved with her romantically, and the Ripper targets her as a victim. This time travel trope allows both Alexander and Meyer to comment not only on the timeless nature of evil, but also on contemporary, that is, the late 1970s, society through the eyes of Jack the Ripper. Quite clever social commentary there. Many an author has chosen this time travel notion in order to dive into the world and the mystery of Jack the Ripper. And as you can expect, these are of varying quality related to the actual facts of the case. And a number of reparologists and scholars and investigators often wince at the inaccuracies that end up in some of these stories. One of the works that received the highest praise for the historical detail and the knowledge, deep knowledge of the case that is shown, is Jana Oliver's novel Sojourn, which came out in 2007. Sojourn is based on the idea that in 2057, 
There is an organization that openly allows time travel, and time tourists are somewhat common. But there is a group called the Time Rovers who watch over this practice. They make sure that everyone gets out of history alive when they go back to experience it, and that they don't change history while they're there. Sojourn begins with a missing tourist in, you guessed it, 1888, and Jacinda, also known as Cinda, is a time rover who's given the mission of going back and finding this overdue tourist. But the mission isn't all that it first seems, and in order to get out of the situation alive, she has to unravel the secrets of Jack the Ripper himself and how he is connected to the Time Rover organization. While it has been labeled a young adult novel, it's certainly worth reading by adults as well. And again, it's one of those stories that gets the history right. Funny enough, some of the reviews of the novel noted that ah, going back in time, finding out there's more to the story than you expect, unraveling the mystery and saving the day is very much a kind of Doctor Who kind of story. Well, as a matter of fact, Doctor Who has handled the Jack the Ripper story again and again. The TV episode "The Talons of Wing Chang" and the novel "Matrix" both deal with Jack the Ripper. And the Doctor Who comic "Ripper's Curse" is, yes, all about the Ripper. "Ripper's Curse" suggests that the Ripper himself was a Rinar war criminal named Macatide. The Doctor Who novel "The Pit," however, suggested that the Fellowship, which committed murders in order to summon the Isgaroth into the universe, was behind at least one of the murders. So there's a lot to unravel in the Doctor Who multimedia universe about who the Ripper was, but we do know at the end that the Ripper did meet his fate in "A Good Man Goes to War," an episode from the Eleventh Doctor. We learn that Madame Vastra, the Silurian, devoured him. She said she found him stringy but tasty all the same. In the audio play "The Kingmaker," the Fifth Doctor promised that he would discuss the mystery of Jack the Ripper's identity in his book "Doctor Who Discovers Historical Mysteries." So we can wait for that for the definitive word. If anyone can untangle all the threads of the story, I'm sure it's the Doctor. Related to time travel is the science fiction trope of alternate history. And perhaps the best example of Jack the Ripper treated in alternate history is Kim Newman's award-winning *Anno Dracula* from 1992. That story mashes together so many texts, including Bram Stoker's *Dracula*, John Polidori's *The Vampire*, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, and just a wealth of others. But the premise. Is centered around Jack the Ripper. The alternate history is a 19th-century English setting that blends seamlessly Victorian realities and Victorian fiction. There are vampires. Humans have been chosen to turn into vampires, and there are still humans who are not vampires. And the plot tracks Jack the Ripper's destruction, politically charged destruction. 
of vampire prostitutes. Jack the Ripper and those who hunt him are the main characters. In that novel, it turns out that Jack the Ripper is not one of the historical suspects at all. It is, in fact, Doctor John or Jack Seward, a fictional character who appeared in Bram Stoker's Dracula. I will also mention, as an aside, that Anno Dracula was credited by Neil Gaiman for inspiring what may be my favorite short story of all time, and that is Neil Gaiman's *A Study in Emerald*. Thank you, Kim Newman. Lastly, speaking of massive literary mashups, let me give you a recommendation for Halloween reading. Perhaps the greatest and definitely the most unusual incorporation of Jack the Ripper into a science fictional setting is Roger Zelazny's 1993 *A Night in the Lonesome October*. How amazing is this book? The setup is pure H.P. Lovecraft. When the moon is full on the night of Halloween, the fabric of reality grows thin, and doors can open between this world and the realm of the great old ones. When the conditions are right, men and women with special knowledge gather at a specific ritual site to either hold the doors closed or help fling them open, depending on their personal loyalties. This reads as a who's who of Victorian. Characters and historical figures. You have Dracula. You have Victor Frankenstein. You have the Wolfman. There's Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson, and a mad monk who is quite probably Grigory Rasputin. And you have Jack the Ripper. In fact, the novel is narrated by Jack the Ripper's dog, rather appropriately named Snuff. This is not played for a laugh. This is played entirely seriously, and it really works in Zelazny's incredibly capable hands. Slowly, over the course of an October day by day, the players take sides. They ally with one another. They become enemies. They make deals, and they even kill each other off. And events accelerate until, of course, October thirty-first, when the ritual takes place. And the fate of our entire world is decided. Highly, highly recommended. When I join you again for the third in this three-part series, marking the 125th anniversary of the Jack the Ripper slayings, we will discuss works that suggest that Jack the Ripper's heinous crimes are hard to imagine as humanly possible because, well. Jack the Ripper wasn't human. I look forward to joining you then for another look back on genre history. Thank you. There you go, thank Amy. Thank you so much. I just love it. You know what I mean? This is why I kind of like getting fact articles, especially Amy H. Sturgis. She just who knows that stuff. You know what I mean? They kind of link those two things together and. Let's see, Jack the Ripper and science fiction, just fantastic. And like I say, I've on the back of that, I read that um, block story for Juliet and Toy for Juliet and the Harlan Ellison one, man. Oh, proud at the edge of the city of forever. Oh, man, that was just. And on the back of that, and this is the such. God, this is why I like science fiction. 
you can just you know and I'm yeah money's tight but there was only I think it was two pound ninety nine the the Galance Gateway books I bought two Harlan Ellison collections there the Deathbird stories and I have no mouth and must scream and cannot scream or whatever the scream he was doing but do you know what I mean? And just like you say, and I'll not tell you where I was when I bought them, but it's a it's a little it's a little room. But just buy them, man. It's just and, and another reason why, you know, this, oh, I just love this kind of virtual world and everything like that. Is and I'm going off track here. Just forgive us, forgive us. But you know, especially with like say digital books, there now they're just there. Any device you can pick up and go to. You know what I mean? You've got your your kind of your digital books there, and I just think that's fantastic. And I was honestly one who had oodles of books. I had this one room, which is a fair size kind of bedroom, but it was before the kids came along. It was a study. It was my little kind of study, my little bolt hole, and it was just wall to wall of books. And all them have gone, and I don't know where. Do you know what I mean? Kind of charity shops and all sorts. But now, just on a Kindle. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of the, the there again. It's just I just love that. Do you know what I mean? And you can carry that around with you. That's what I love. You know. So sorry. Yes, getting getting back on track, man. How we doing? So what we're going to do now is play the main fiction, and it is Cassandra by C.J. Cherry. And like I say, this was a 1979 Hugo Award for best short story, and. Honestly, when you go onto the internet, the, the science fiction internet database, the amount of, you know, anthologies it's been in, it is just staggering. Like I say, it won the Hugo Award. It was up for, it was the nominee for, I think it came sixth in the Locus Poll Award in 1979. And it was a nomination for the Nebula Award. It came out in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in that October 1978 edition. It also was in the 1979 annual World's Best Science Fiction. It was in Science Fiction Story Reader 13. And I'll just give you a few here because there is just oodles of them. Wolheim's World's Best SF Series 8. It came out in C.J. Cherry's own publication, Visible Light. Then the Hugo Winners, Volume 4, 1976-79. SF Collection, edited by Ariel Bronson. Unexplained Stories of the Paranormal came out in that. Like I say, a phenomenal story that just has had so much legs, you know what I mean? Just like kind of from 19... And like he has 2013 and we're playing it, you know? And a big thank you to CJ Cherry for allowing Starship Sova to play this story. And like I say, this is the first time we've had CJ Cherry on the show and it is just... You know, I'm really proud to be quite honest. If anyone doesn't know, I will read a bio. bio is fantastic. Get a load of this. C.J. Cherry writes full-time. She travels. She tries out things. The list includes present and past tense. Fencing, riding, archery, firearms, ancient weapons, donkeys, elephants, camels, butterflies, frogs, wasps, turtles, bees, ants, falconry, exotic swamp plants and tropical tropicals, lizards, wilderness survival, fishing, sailing, street and ice skating, mechanics, carpentry, wiring, painting, canvas, painting, house, painting, interior, sculpting. Aquarium is both fresh and salt water, needlepoint, bird breeding, furniture refurbishment, video caves, archaeology, Roman Greek, caves, <laughs> koi pond. Come on, man. 
She's travelled from New York to Istanbul and Troy, outrun a dog pack in Thebes and seen Columbia lift on her first flight. She's fallen down a muddy chute in a Christian cave, nearly drowned in the Illinois River, broke an arm, being kicked and tossed by horses, fended off an Arabic <laughs> merchant in a Turkish tent bazaar, fought a prairie fire, slept on the deck in the Adriatic, driven Piccadilly Circus at rush hour. Man, she's my hero. She's waded two oceans and four of the sea, seven seas. Seen Haley's coming from Australia's far coast and wants to visit the Amazon, the Serengeti, and seen the Erebus volcano in Antarctica. She's seen the northern lights and been in big tornadoes and small earthquakes. She chooses to live downwind wind of five active volcanoes, one of which has just waked up. She loves the snow and cold, and with her good friend, Jane Francher, she took up figure skating at 61. She took silver to her gold in the first small competition six months later. There you go. What a woman. Man! Just fantastic. And this story as well, this story is just narrated. Fantastic. It's narrated by Nicholas Seaton Clark. Now, people who used to listen to the show oodles of time ago, Nicholas did the James Morrow story, Lady Witherspoon's. Oh no, I forget what it was called. It was just, fan, like I say, do you know what I mean? Just fantastic narration. And Nicholas got perfect voice for this story. Nicholas worked professionally as an actress for over 15 years. During this time, she's worked for TV, film, and radio. She started her career as a jazz singer and later as a singer in a rock band. Her voiceover experience includes TV and radio advertising, singing jingles, film dubbing and synchronisation, training videos, corporate films, animation and interactive voice response for telephone menus. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Cassandra by C.J. Cherry. Fires. They grew unbearable here. Alice felt for the door of the flat and knew that it would be solid. She could feel the cool metal of the knob amid the flames. Saw the shadow stairs through the roiling smoke outside, clearly enough to feel her way down them, convincing her senses that they would bear her weight. Crazy Alice. She made no haste. The fires burned steadily. She passed through them, descended the insubstantial steps to the solid ground, she could not abide the elevator. That closed space with a shadow floor that plummeted down and down. She made the ground floor, averted her eyes from the red, heatless flames. A ghost said good morning to her. Old man Willis, thin and transparent against the leaping flames. She blinked, bade it good morning in return, did not miss old Willis's shake of the head as she opened the door and left. Noon traffic passed, heedless of the flames, the hulks that blazed in the street, the tumbling brick. The apartment caved in, black bricks falling into the inferno, hell amid the green ghostly trees. Old Willis fled, burning, fell, turned to jerking blackened flesh and died, daily. Alice no longer cried, hardly flinched. She ignored the horror spilling about her, forced her way through crumbling brick that held no substance, past busy ghosts that could not be troubled in their haste. Kingsley's Café stood, whole, more so than the rest. It was refuge for the afternoon, a feeling of safety. She pushed open the door, heard the tinkle of a lost bell. Shadowy patrons looked, whispered, Crazy Alice. 
The whispers troubled her. She avoided their eyes and their presence, settled in a booth in the corner that bore only traces of the fire. War, the headline in the vendor said in heavy type. She shivered, looked up into Sam Kingsley's wraith-like face. Coffee, she said. Ham sandwich. It was constantly the same. She varied not even the order. Mad Alice. Her affliction supported her. A check came each month since the hospital had turned her out. Weekly, she returned to the clinic to doctors who now faded like the others. The building burned about them. Smoke rolled down the blue antiseptic halls. Last week, a patient ran, burning. A rattle of china. Sam set the coffee on the table, came back shortly and brought the sandwich. She bent her head and ate, transparent food on half-broken china, a cracked, fire-smudged cup with a transparent handle. She ate, hungry enough to overcome the horror that had become ordinary. A hundred times seen, the most terrible sights lost their power over her. She no longer cried at shadows. She talked to ghosts and touched them, ate the food that somehow stilled the ache in her belly, wore the same too large black sweater and worn blue shirt and grey slacks because they were all she had that seemed solid. Nightly, she washed them and dried them and put them on the next day, letting others hang in the closet. They were the only solid ones. She did not tell the doctors these things. A lifetime in and out of hospitals had made her wary of confidences. She knew what to say. Her half-vision let her smile at the ghost faces, cannily manipulate their charts and cards sitting in the ruins that had begun to smoulder by late afternoon. A blackened corpse lay in the hall. She did not flinch when she smiled good-naturedly at the doctor. They gave her medicines. The medicine stopped the dreams, the siren screams, the running steps in the night past her apartment. They let her sleep in the ghostly bed, high above ruin with the flames crackling and the voices screaming. She did not speak of these things. Years in hospitals had taught her. She complained only of nightmares and restlessness, and they let her have more of the red pills. War, the headline blazoned. The cup rattled and trembled against the saucer as she picked it up. She swallowed the last bit of bread and washed it down with coffee, tried not to look beyond the broken front windows where twisted metal hulks smoked on the street. She stayed as she did each day, and Sam grudgingly refilled her cup, which she would nurse as far as she could, and then she would order another one. She lifted it, savouring the feel of it, stopping the trembling of her hands. The bell jingled faintly. A man closed the door, settled at the counter. Hole. Clear in her eyes. She stared at him, startled, heart-pounding. He ordered coffee, moved to buy a paper from the vendor, settled again and let the coffee grow cold while he read the news. She had view only of his back while he read, scuffed brown leather coat, brown hair a little over his collar. At last, he drank the cooled coffee all at one draught, shoved money onto the counter and left the paper lying, headlines turned face down. A young face, flesh and bone among the ghosts. He ignored them all and went for the door. Alice thrust herself from her booth. Hey! Sam called at her. She rummaged in her purse as the bell jingled, flung a bill onto the counter, heedless that it was a five. Fear was coppery in her mouth. He was gone. She fled the cafe, edged around debris without thinking of it, saw his back disappearing among the ghosts. She ran, 
shouldering them, braving the flames, cried out as debris showered painlessly on her and kept running. Ghosts turned and stared, shocked. He did likewise, and she ran to him, stunned to see the same shock on his face regarding her. What is it? he asked. She blinked, dazed to realize he saw her no differently than the others. She could not answer. In irritation, he started walking again and she followed. Tears slid down her face, her breath hard in her throat. People stared. He noticed her presence and walked faster, through debris, through fires. A wall began to fall and she cried out despite herself. He jerked about. The dust and the soot rose up as a cloud behind him. His face was distraught and angry. He stared at her as the others did. Mothers drew children away from the scene. A band of youths stared, cold-eyed and laughing. Wait, she said. He opened his mouth as if he would curse her. She flinched, and the tears were cold in the heatless wind of the fires. His face twisted in an embarrassed pity. He thrust a hand into his pocket and began to pull out money, hastily tried to give it to her. She shook her head furiously, trying to stop the tears, stared upward, flinching as another building fell into flames. What's wrong? he asked her. What's wrong with you? Please, she said. He looked about at the staring ghosts, then began to walk slowly. She walked with him, nerving herself not to cry out at the ruin, the pale moving figures that wandered through burned shells of buildings, the twisted corpses in the street where traffic moved. What's your name? he asked. She told him. He gazed at her from time to time as they walked, a frown creasing his brow. He had a Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A face well-worn for youth, a tiny scar beside the mouth. He looked older than she. She felt uncomfortable in the way his eyes travelled over her. She decided to accept it, to bear with anything that gave her this one solid presence. Against every inclination, she reached her hand onto the bend of his arm, tightened her fingers on the worn leather. He accepted it. And after a time, he slid his arm behind her and about her waist, and they walked like lovers. War, 
the headline at the newsstand cried. He started to turn into a street by Ten's hardware. She balked at what she saw there. He paused when he felt it faced her with his back to the fires of that burning. Don't go, she said. Where do you want to go? She shrugged helplessly, indicated the main street the other direction. He talked to her then as he might talk to a child, humouring her fear. It was pity. Some treated her that way. She recognised it and took even that. His name was Jim. He'd come into the city yesterday, hitching rides. He was looking for work. He knew no one in the city. She listened to his rambling awkwardness, reading through it. When he was done, she stared at him still and saw his face contract in dismay at her. I'm not crazy, she told him, which was a lie that everyone in Sudbury would have known, only he would not, knowing no one. His face was true and solid, and the tiny scar by the mouth made it hard when he was thinking. At another time she would have been terrified of him. Now she was terrified of losing him amid the ghosts. It's the war, he said. She nodded, trying to look at him and not at the fires. His fingers touched her arm gently. It's the war, he said again. It's all crazy. Everyone's crazy. And then he put his hand on her shoulder and turned her back the other way, toward the park where green leaves waved over black skeletal limbs. They walked along the lake, and for the first time in a long time she drew breath and felt a whole sane presence beside her. They bought corn and sat on the grass by the lake and flung it to the spectral swans. Wraiths of passers-by were few, only enough to keep a feeling of occupancy about the place, old people mostly, tottering about the deliberate tranquility of their routine despite the headlines. Do you see them? she ventured to ask him finally. All thin and grey? He did not understand, did not take her literally, only shrugged. Wearily she abandoned that questioning at once. She rose to her feet and stared at the horizon, where the smoke bannered on the wind. Buy you supper? he asked. She turned, prepared for this, and managed a shy, desperate smile. Yes, she said, knowing what else he reckoned to buy with that, willing and hating herself, and desperately afraid he would walk away tonight, tomorrow. She did not know men. She had no idea what she could say or do to prevent his leaving, only that he would when someday he recognised her madness. Even her parents had not been able to bear with that, visited her only at first in the hospitals and then only on holidays, and then not at all. She did not know where they were. There was a neighbour boy who drowned. She had said he would. She had cried for it. All the town said it was she who pushed him. Crazy Alice. Fantasizers, the doctor said. Not dangerous. They let her out. There were special schools, state schools, and, from time to time, hospitals. Tranquilizers. She'd left the red pills at home. The realization brought sweat to her palms. They, they gave sleep. They stopped the dreams. She clamped her lips against the panic and made up her mind that she would not need them. Not while she was not alone. She slipped her hand into his arm and walked with him, secure and strange, up the steps from the park to the streets and stopped. The fires were out. Ghost buildings rose above their jagged and windowless shells. Wraiths moved through masses of debris, almost obscured at times. He tugged her on, but her step faltered. 
made him look at her strangely and put his arm about her. You're shivering, he said. Cold? She shook her head, tried to smile. The fires were out. She tried to take it for a good omen. The nightmare was over. She looked up into his solid, concerned face and her smile almost became a wild laugh. I'm hungry, she said. They lingered over a dinner in Graben's, he in his battered jacket, she in her sweater that hung at the tails and elbows. The spectral patrons were in far better clothes and stared at them, and they were set in a corner nearest the door where they would be less visible. There was cracked crystal and broken china on insubstantial tables, and the stars winked coldly in gaping ruin above the wan glitter of the broken chandeliers. Ruins. Cold, peaceful ruins. Alice looked about her calmly. One could live in ruins, only so the fires were gone. And there was Jim, who smiled at her without any touch of pity, only a wild, fey desperation that she understood, who spent more than he could afford in Graben's, the inside of which she had never hoped to see, and told her, predictably, that she was beautiful. Others had said it. Vaguely she resented such triteness from him, from him who she had decided to trust. She smiled sadly when he said it, and gave it up for a frown, and fearful of offending him with her melancholies, made it a smile again. Crazy Alice. He would learn, and leave tonight if she were not careful. She tried to put on gaiety, tried to laugh. And then the music stopped in the restaurant, and the noise of the other diners went dead and the speaker was giving an inane announcement. Shelters, shelters, shelters. Screams broke out. Chairs overturned. Alice went limp in her chair, felt Jim's cold, solid hand tugging at hers, saw his frightened face mouthing her name as he took her up into his arms, pulled her with him, started running. The cold air outside hit her, shocked her into sight of the ruins again, wraith figures pelting towards that chaos where the fires had been worst, and she knew. No, she cried, pulling at his arm. No, she insisted, and bodies half-seen buffeted them in a rush to destruction. He yielded to her sudden certainty, gripped her hand and fled with her against the crowds as the sirens wailed madness through the night, fled with her as she ran her sighted way through the ruins and into Kingsley's, where cafe tables stood abandoned with food still on them, doors ajar, chairs overturned. Back they went into the kitchens and down and down into the cellar, the dark, the cold safety from the flames. No others found them there. At last, the earth shook too deep for sound. The siren ceased and did not come on again. They lay in the dark and clutched each other and shivered. And above them for hours raged the sound of fire, smoke sometimes drifting in to sting their eyes and noses. There was the distant crash of brick, rumblings that shook the ground that came near but never touched their refuge. And in the morning, with the scent of fire still in the air, they crept up into the murky daylight. The ruins were still and hushed, the ghost buildings were solid now, mere shells. The wraiths were gone. It was the fires themselves that were strange, some true, some not, playing above dark, cold brick, and most were fading. Jim swore softly, over and over again, and he wept. When she looked at him, she was dry-eyed, for she had done her crying already. And she listened as he began to talk about food, about leaving the city, the two of them. All right, she said. 
then clamped her lips, shut her eyes against what she saw in his face. When she opened them, it was still true. The sudden transparency, the wash of blood. She trembled, and he shook at her, his ghost face distraught. What's wrong? he asked. What's wrong? She could not tell him. Would not. She remembered the boy who had drowned, remembered the other ghosts. Of a sudden she tore from his hands and ran, dodging the maze of debris that, this morning, was solid. Alice, he cried, and came after her. No, she cried suddenly, turning, seeing the unstable wall, the cascading brick. She started back and stopped, unable to force herself. She held out her hands to warn him back and saw them solid. The brick rumbled and fell. Dust came up thick for a moment, obscuring everything. She stood still, hands at her sides, then wiped her sooty face and turned and started walking, keeping to the center of the dead streets. Overhead, clouds gathered, heavy with rain. She wandered at peace now, seeing the rain spot the pavement, not yet feeling it. In time, the rain did fall, and the ruins became chill and cold. She visited the dead lake and the burned trees, the ruin of Grabens, out of which she gathered a string of crystal to wear. She smiled when, a day later, a looter drove her from her food supply. He had a wraith's look, and she laughed from a place he did not dare to climb and told him so, and recovered her cash later when it came true, and settled among the ruined shells that held no further threat, no other nightmares, with her crystal necklace and tomorrows that were the same as today. One could live in ruins, only so the fires were gone. And the ghosts were all in the past. Invisible. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is CJ Cherries. Thank you so much. And big thank you to Nicola for that fantastic narration. What a voice, Nick, man. Oh, fantastic. Next up is an interview with that man himself, Mr. John Joseph Adams, who has got this fantastic idea and wanting it kick-started. Help fund my robot army and other improbable kickstarters. <laughs> Come on, man. That's just fantastic. So, without further ado, we have that man himself, Mr. John Joseph Adams. John! Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. Yeah, through the grapevine, sir. You've, um, you're going down the Kickstarter route again. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had a really good experience when I did the Kickstarter for Nightmare Magazine, and uh, I, I felt like it was a really great... I've always felt like it's a really great platform for exploring different sorts of projects, and uh, I've had a couple ideas for Kickstarters for anthologies that I thought would work, but um, I think I really hit on one that uh, is really ideal for Kickstarter. Um so what happened was, uh, you know, I edit Lightspeed Magazine, and I got a story submitted to me there called Help Fund My Robot Army by Kefi Curley. And it's a story told in the form of a Kickstarter pitch. So, you know, he uses project goals, rewards, FAQs, that kind of stuff uh, to tell the story. And it's about a guy who wants to fund a robot army, you know. And uh, so when I, when I read the story, I thought it was really funny. And then 
Uh, but then my second thought was I should totally build an anthology around this because I could imagine all of these different uh, possible uh, Kickstarters that people could imagine uh, from like alternate universes or, you know, places where you can uh, summon demons or defy gravity or wield magic, that kind of stuff. And um, so once I came up with the idea to do the anthology, I thought, well, obviously I have to launch it by a Kickstarter just because there's that sort of meta thing going on where you have uh, uh, a Kickstarter for an anthology about fictional Kickstarters. <laughs> <laughs> this is just it just has to work this john because i like your title help fund my robot army because and that's you know the kind of the tagline underneath and other improbable kickstarters and i'm thinking mm-hmm. wait, I, I couldn't get my head around it now so obviously the, the story is about a kickstarter robot army that's yeah, just yeah. it must have like you say just jumped out from the page for you when you were reading it and think oh yes and yeah. actually i'll tell you what's really good as well because i guess you are the guy who knows kind of the writers there you know you've got some cracking writers in there who are kind of do robots or, or do robots pretty good there was who's the the lad i can't forget his name there now i'm just having a look down your list or oh, daniel h wilson i don't uh-huh. think you could probably get a better guy who's into robots <laughs> Right. Right. You know, he's the robot guy for sure. Um, and, you know, although although the, we're calling the book uh, Help Fund My Robot Army, uh, you know, not uh, that one story is about robots and Daniel's story will probably be about robots. But in, in general, the stories will cover the gamut of any whatever the writers can want to come up with. Like, for instance, uh, somebody wanted to write a story about uh, funding a project to turn cats into assassins. Um, and so it's just like it's going to be all over the map because uh, I. I just went with that title because it was. I thought it was funny, and uh, Kepi's story was already called that, and he was fine with me using that, you know, borrowing that for the anthology title as well. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I mean, the idea is just to uh, to to communicate that uh, it's funding something ridiculous, and uh, or or at least uh, not possible in the real world. And uh, I and I think uh, you know the the Kickstarter video and the and the project and the project description and everything that'll that'll make it clear to everyone. But uh, yeah, not every story is going to have robots in it is it john is it easier going down this way work-wise for you or is it easier just going and giving your pitch to a publisher that you know like a publisher and doing mm-hmm. it that you know the the old-fashioned method right uh you know there's arguments in favor of both uh, methods uh there it's 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 a little easier to do it this way in the sense that I can conceive of the project and I can line up the authors. And then once I'm happy with what authors I have on board, I'm good to go. When I'm dealing with a publisher, a lot of times I can go out and recruit people and I can get all the authors that I think are great for the project. But then I go to the publishers and like, well, they're not happy enough with the lineup that I have, or they want me to get X writer or this or Y writer. And, and the, or, or they just want, or they don't even know who they want, but they're just like, oh, well, those, that's not enough. We need bigger names. We need more bigger names, whatever, stuff like that. So so this is easier in that way. Um, there's a lot of other challenges that doing it as a Kickstarter do, uh, has because, you know, I'm doing it myself. I'm publishing it myself. I have to publicize it myself. Um, but for a book like this, I think it's a really interesting uh, a way to do it just because it does have that meta thing going. I'm hopeful that kickstarter themselves will actually get behind it because they think it's cool because i mean it's it's essentially glorifying kickstarter so um and i already did get permission from them like they said it was okay that i, that I use kickstarter in the title you know and right, so right um so uh once we actually launch i'm gonna I'm, I'm hoping to uh well by the time this airs well we, we will have launched but um 
you know, uh, I'm, I'm hope I'm hoping that I can, you know, get in touch with somebody in their PR department and get them to maybe get behind it. And, uh, you know, because Kickstarter often features things on their homepage and, and calls out certain projects as, you know, as things they're excited about. And so if, if we can get them to uh, help out uh, in that way, then, then I think that would be good. That would be. Do you know what I mean? That would be fantastic. Like you say, and it must be kind of unicorns tears or something to try and work out how <laughs> to get on to that kind of front page because they must have a yeah. massive like audience you know because that's yeah. where you do you do land on that you know straight away so to right. get on there would just be like a like a, a right good shot in the arm how i tell you i'm interested in finding out because there's a couple of writers there who i'm kind of thinking or i didn't know actually wrote and, and one straight away is that um veronica belmont now like i uh-huh. said i know her from sword and laser and mm-hmm. you know the co-host of Texilla. How did you come across Veronica as a writer then? Uh, well, you know, I was doing um, I'm, I was doing another anthology uh, proposal, and uh, I, that one hasn't sold yet, so I don't want to say what it is. But I was doing another proposal, and uh, I had the idea to ask her because it was sort of uh, of it, it was it was it was on a topic that I thought would be of interest to her. So I just reached out to her to see if uh, if she wanted to try something because I wasn't sure that she wrote fiction either. But um, I guess it's something that she'd been you know tinkering with uh, you know on the side. She hasn't really uh, published. I don't think she's really published anything in fiction yet. But um, I just thought it, it was. Uh, sort of in her wheelhouse enough that I could at least ask her. And so she was, she was into it. Um, and then since I had already recruited her for that other one, um, when I was doing this one, I thought I'd ask her since, you know, she's obviously a very, uh, a new media sort of person. And, uh, I thought she might like something like this. I mean, you've, you're taking a bit of a chance there though, aren't you? You know, kind of, I mean, <laughs> I know you, you can kind of edit up and spot a good story and kind of, I guess, twist it round. But if yeah. she hasn't, you know, a kind of new published writer, that's a big right. chance for you, isn't it? Well, I mean, in a way, I mean, uh, when you recruit an author for an anthology, I mean, you're not like 100% required to take what they turn in if what they turn in is just completely unacceptable. Uh, I mean, like you say, I, I, I can work, I can work with writers and I can, uh, you know, usually work things into shape. Um, I mean, if it, if it turned out to be something that just wasn't, uh, wasn't working, then, you know, I would have to tell her that I can't use it or, or, you know, or whoever. Like, I mean, that goes for anyone. Um, I've had to reject stories by major authors before just because because like they didn't fit the project or there was something about it that just wasn't working at all for me. And uh, I mean, that's just how it works. Is that, um, I mean, getting off the kind of the, the topic, out there, is that a pretty hard thing to do, John? Is it to kind of turn around, uh, with, especially someone who's got some cred, you know, writing yeah. to say that that's not working sunshine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really hard. Um, I mean, I was just talking about this on Geek's Guide the other day, but um there was an author who sent me something to Lightspeed recently, and I really, really had been going after this guy to send me a story for a long time. And he's a notable author, like, you know, everybody would know who he is. And so I was just really glad to see the story come in. And um, I had a couple different problems with it, but uh, ultimately, like, um, it was an anti-geek story. Um, you know, like, there was something about, you know, the characters and through from the author basically talking through the characters uh basically promoting an, an anti-geek message and and i just i couldn't i couldn't get over that and That's and that was just like yes no. <laughs> and so uh and so i and so i i had to pass on it and i was just but i was it was a real bummer because i just i would really love to publish that author especially an original and um yeah i just i couldn't get past that um and uh and you know if they, if it was the only issue i had with the story maybe maybe i could have worked around it but 
um, I don't know. I, I, I think that that probably would have been a showstopper for me, um, no matter what. But, um, uh, yeah, that was a hard one to pass on. Um, and I've had, I've had that happen with some other authors too, and not in the same sort of situation, but, uh, other notable authors that I've had to reject, um, including, um, uh, one that ended up, uh, you know, a guy that got pretty mad at me afterward and, uh, he's still, he's still sort of sore about it, I think. So, um, <laughs> That's yeah. That's unfortunate. That's the weird. You you stand by your guns, lad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, John, tell us a bit more then about this Kickstarter. What can what kind of have you got some nice rewards for if we if we back this? Oh yeah. Um. So uh, if you donate ten dollars or more, you get a copy of the anthology plus some other stuff. So you get a copy of the anthology and you get uh, an issue of Lightspeed, an issue of Nightmare, um, and you know some other stuff. And uh, but there's other prizes you can pick from as well. Like you can get a subscription to Lightspeed or Nightmare, or you can get signed copies of my anthologies. Um, I've actually got some major uh, reward tiers too. So there's things like. Um, you can be like, I, I have it called the super fan pack and it's like a, it's a signed copy of every one of my anthologies, um, plus a copy of the new anthology, of course. Um, but, uh, so there's, so there's lots of cool things to pick from. Um, we're also going to add some other stuff in later on in the, in the, in the Kickstarter at that, that, you know, stuff that's not available right now when we're just as we've launched, but we're going to sort of add, uh, throughout the month, uh, that the Kickstarter runs. Um, so that'll be something to look forward to from, for, for people as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, different prizes at different levels, the uh, different ways for you to back. Um, there's also, uh, a, a, a frugal friend, uh, tier that I, uh, that I labeled it, uh, where you, you're just like donating, uh, five bucks and, uh, you don't get a copy of the book for that, but you get, uh, acknowledgements, uh, you get, you get added to the acknowledgements in the anthology as a supporter. So, uh, you know, lots of different options. I like that. I've seen a, a number of cases now, John, where the kind of, you reach your goal and then there's more goals. Have you got anything like that set in, you know, like say bring another right as in if you if you reach your kind of what is your what is i've never asked you what is your your goal what what have you got to achieve to to get this funded uh yeah we're just looking for uh six thousand dollars to to fund it and uh uh you know anything uh anything we make above that uh instead of doing stretch goals like a lot of kickstarters do i i wanted to keep the the kickstarter fairly simple because when you do start doing stretch goals it makes it much more complicated to complete your kickstarter and it makes it much more difficult because like if you end up doing t-shirts and stickers or whatever all that stuff just makes it logistically much more difficult and so um what i wanted to do was anything that we raise above and beyond our goal I'm just going to share with the contributors. So that way, if you're supporting the project, um, you, you know that, you know, oh, it's not just me like getting rich off this book or whatever. You know, I'm going to share the proceeds with the contributors just as you would any any anthology. So um, so so it's basically just all going into the the anthology pot and then it all gets distributed amongst everyone, um, you know, on a pro rata basis, as they say in the anthology world, you know, based on how long each person's story is and what their contribution is and whatnot. So, you know, John, you, you've had success then with that, the nightmare one, you know, what, mm -hmm. what happens if it doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. God forbid, you know, that's the last thing on yeah. God's green earth I want to see happen. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But yeah. it, it, that must just be on your mind as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is the sort of project. Like, I mean, there's like some projects that if 
you try to do a Kickstarter for it and you doesn't and it doesn't work, you know, maybe you'll still do it uh, some other way or, you know, maybe you're just planning to do it all along and you just want to raise some capital to, to get it going. This is one where I was like, well, if it doesn't work on Kickstarter, it's probably not going to work anywhere. And so uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, uh, all or nothing sort of proposition for this one, because, I mean, it's, it's all about Kickstarters. If I can't fund it on Kickstarter, then it's never going <laughs> to never going to make it anywhere. I hope it does. So it's out now because, like I say, we were yep. recording this like kind of in, in in the past time. It's out now. How long is it going to run for? And when can people start if it does kind of make its goal? Mm-hmm. When can we have the kind of the merchandise? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, it's going to run for the month of October, and uh, so from October first to October thirty first. And uh, I'm planning to have the anthology out. Uh, in summer 2014. And so, um, you know, I've got a schedule in place. I, you know, I've got my authors turning in stories, uh, you know, a couple months from now. And then uh, that gives me time to edit and format the eBooks and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, you know, gives me a little leeway in case anyone's late turning in a story. So that way I figure, um, I, I'm building enough, uh, lead time into the whole project so that I can promise that it'll be out in summer next year without having to worry about, um, having to delay it or anything. Cause that's sort of the case of death of a Kickstarter because uh, so many projects have sort of over promised things or have been overly optimistic about when they can deliver this or that. And, and we've been seeing a lot about that recently, but uh, you know, I think that um, this should, uh, this one people should feel very secure that I'm going to deliver when promised. And I mean, after all, I've been doing light speed since 2011 and we've never had an issue uh, late and I've done, you know, 16 anthologies now and I've never had a, book delayed uh on the publication schedule because of me um so you know have you done uh, have you done 16 anthologies now have you yeah wow man yeah 16 have been published already and then um you know i've got a couple others in the in the pipeline that haven't come out yet that are you know coming out next year and 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 so on so was your first one am i right in thinking was caesar change uh, well, Seeds of Change was my first original anthology. Uh, Wastelands is actually the first one that came out. Right. Uh, Seeds of Change came out second. Right, right. So from the, wow, I, I never even knew that because yeah, <laughs> you, you kind of just take it for granted. Oh, we've got a new one coming from right? John's coming out, you know. And but I didn't realize there was sixteen. Go on there, sir. You need a, <laughs> a pat on the back for that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of the nice things about being an anthology editor as opposed to a novelist. Like, uh, for an anthology editor, it, it's it's much more feasible for you to do several books a year. So it's actually almost expected that I'll, I'll probably do two or three or four books a year. Whereas a novelist, that's much harder to do. I mean, there are some people who do that, like Shauna McGuire. I mean, I don't know how she <laughs> has time to do eat, to eat or sleep or do anything because uh, she's she's writing so many books and, and writing so many different short stories. But, uh, but you know, for most novelists, it's, it's pretty pretty rough to even just manage that one a year so um but for an anthology editor yeah it's i mean it's pretty fairly common to, to have several come out a year which is why i've been able to have so many uh published so far so it's just before we kind of wrap up john is things still going okay light speed nightmare you know is everything still on track there and we're still cracking away turn them out uh yeah yeah I mean, I mean everything's going well with lightspeed uh i mean w- with lightspeed we recently raised our pay rate uh to eight cents a word uh that was a couple months ago and uh so you know things have been going well enough that we were comfortable doing that um with nightmare things are going well as well it's uh it's not it's not uh quite as successful as lightspeed but it's uh, that's to be expected i mean it's only been out for a year and it's a different genre but uh um, I'm actually in the process of uh, taking over complete uh, publishing control of Nightmare. I had previously partnered with Creeping Hemlock Press 
else. That's right, um, yeah. and, uh, and they were running into a bit of a difficulty on their end, and, and they're sort of looking to get out of uh, publishing and, and focusing on other things uh, in their business life. So um, I'm just going to I'm just going to be taking over full control of that. And, uh, you know, once I get all that squared away, uh, yeah, I mean, Nightmare will be fine. And uh, but I mean, Nightmare has been very exciting to me editorially. I've been uh, really glad to discover some of the new authors that I've found in the magazine and uh, uh, just and, you know, just publishing horror works from other authors that I already know. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just I, I've been really happy with what I've turned out so far in this first year. Well, um, you know, actually, uh, uh, October 1st will be our uh, our first our first issue of year two, you know, because September was our uh, our, right, our 12th yes. issue. So so October is our anniversary issue. So it's also something to celebrate um, next month or this month. <laughs> is is it is it difficult, John, to to be an editor of a like a science fiction magazine and a horror magazine? Because I, I, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It's just like I'm kind of with 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 our tales to terrify. You know, Larry do, takes care of everything, sort of thing. Mm. And it just is. Do you read, say, a science fiction and a horror story in the same day? You know, mm. when you're looking. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sure. Sometimes, um, you know, one the biggest difficulty I've been having is that. So the thing is, nightmare is horror and dark fantasy, and the trouble that I run into is where's the line between dark fantasy and regular fantasy? Because mm-hmm. I get I get things that are submitted to me at light speed. And I look at them, and it's like, well, it's obviously fantasy, but is this dark enough for Nightmare? Is it more appropriate for Nightmare, or should it be in Lightspeed? Because the thing is, Lightspeed is supposed to be a general science fiction fantasy magazine. It doesn't have any specific dark focus, right? So I can't publish... I can't publish a ton of dark stuff because I don't want it to be overwhelmingly dark. And uh, but but Nightmare does have that darker focus. It's horror and dark fantasy. And so, uh, but the question always becomes, well, where is the line? Because there's some things like I brought a, I bought a Tim Pratt story recently, and it's it's about a guy who's sort of like a, a, a an angel of death, sort of an, an instrument of the angel of death, kind of right. And so that's very dark, but um, it's sort of. It sort of felt a little bit more light-hearted in terms of the way the story is told, as opposed to something very grim. And so I was sort of on the fence of where to put it. Eventually, I decided to put it in Nightmare, um, and that was partially, at least, determined by the fact that I, I had a ton of inventory for Lightspeed, and I was I had less um, on hand for Nightmare. And I asked him if he had a feeling either way, and he thought it was fine for Nightmare. So I was like, well, let's do that. And I mean, I'm like, hey, I mean, I'm the guy that decides what's uh, Nightmare material. So if I think it's fine, then it's fine. <laughs> And I mean, if readers complain, then 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 I'll listen to them, and I'll uh, maybe rethink that in the future. But <laughs> well, John, honestly, I kind of wish you, you know, so much, you know, thoughts go out for you, hope for your fingers crossed, toes crossed, that this help fund my robot army and other improbable kickstarters gets funded, because that would just be just the title alone, and that, like, see, I'd mm-hmm. love to read that story that kind of kicked it off as well. So that would be fantastic. Good luck, sir. Well, thank you. And actually, if you want to read that story, um, the story that uh, kicked it all off by Kepi Curley, you can actually read it right now in the October 2013 issue of Lightspeed. And you can it's on the website. It's available for free. So you can get a good sense of what the anthology would be like by reading that one right now. There you go. The, the, the story that kicked it all off. Go over there to John. I'll put a little link on to John's site there so we can go and get grab that story john what can i say thanks thanks so much for coming on do you know i know you've got to kind of rush off there now but i just wanted to desperately to get you on there to kind of talk about this because just you know like i say i just wanted so much for it to happen for you and give my regards to your good wife sir i will do thanks again for having me i'm always happy to come on the sofa marvelous thank you john all right thanks tony 
I'll put a link onto that, that Kickstarter. I have done it there. That's I put my name down for an, anth- an anthology when it comes out. Please, you do the same. Like I said, there'll be a link over there. Yeah, you can find the link at johnjosephadams.com forward slash a backslash Kickstarter. There you go. Please pop over there and support that. Like I say, a fantastic anthology. So that is today's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope you're ready for more next week. Until then, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story Sofa. A procedure Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.